the social life It's the Darren Show The Darren Show Don't ask if he's single You already know Cause it's the Darren Show A simple name For a simple guy With a simple face It's the Darren Show Hello everyone And welcome to the Darren Show uh, Feels like it's been a while uh, There was a, a bit of a Probably I guess it hasn't been a while For the listeners Since uh, there was a bit of a delay for the Netta episode. I apologize for that. Um, there was uh, a bit of a complication. Uh, basically, um, Netta, uh, and she, she mentioned this on Reddit, uh, she got a little bit nervous. Um, I, I basically told her, uh, you know, totally up to you. Whatever you want to do, uh, I'm, I'm down to do it. So um, she ultimately decided uh, she did want it to be released. And, um, and so we got it out there. And the response has been amazing. And she just has been uh, so, so like, I, it takes a lot of strength to, uh, to do, uh, you know, to come out and be vulnerable. Um, so I want to give her a lot of props for that. And for, um, uh, for, for letting me release this and for coming to me and, and, and being open with me in general. So thank you, Netta. Uh, but this week I have another guest. Uh, I have Lita with me. Uh, Lita, who is a, uh, a writer, uh, a podcaster. Um, I do the American Ninja Warrior podcast with her. She does the So You Think You Can Dance podcast. You may have originally known her as uh, the Spicen intern Lita. Um, so, uh, I've got her with me this week so we can have a, a bit of a chat, maybe, uh, help you get to know Lita a little better. How are you doing, Lita? I'm good. I'm so excited to be the 10th most interesting person that you wanted to interview on here. It's such an honor. So this is the thing you'll learn about Lita first <laughs> is that she's so petty and, uh, she just like constantly like, oh man, uh, why don't you validate me constantly, Taryn? Oh why gosh. wasn't I the first guest on the Taryn show? <laughs> Um, no, I'm actually really excited for this. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. When I was a kid, um, my mom used to drive me to school every day and we would listen to NPR um, every single morning. And this is how like sad and realistic my childhood dreams were. I would like dream about being interviewed on NPR by Terry Gross on Fresh Air, not like on the late night circuit or on red carpets, like specifically on NPR. So this is like very close to to a dream come true for me seems like it would be totally close yeah i'm exactly that person yeah yeah i mean you're not quite terry gross but you're getting there you I'm probably have way more twitter followers well, tyranny taryn gross yeah taryn gross yeah <laughs> but not like the bad kind of gross like the big kind of gross yes <laughs> like gdp yeah um so uh so yeah let's uh let's let's get right into this um you uh you mentioned uh you know growing up listening to NPR what was uh what was your your growing up experience Lita Oh my gosh my growing up experience um I went to the same prep school from kindergarten to graduation um there were 30 people in my class in lower school then 40 in middle school then I graduated with 60 so it was basically the same kids um the whole time I never moved houses I'm still living in my mom's house that I grew up in, um, did not do a lot of change in my life. Um, my mom was a stay at home mom. Um, so I'm really close with my parents, but I, you know, I danced, I played sports, I did all, all the normal stuff. Um, but by the time I graduated high school, I was like, I'm going to go to the biggest school that I get into. Like I want a football team. I never had a football team. I never got to be a cheerleader. Um, so I think 
a lot of the time growing up, even though I loved my school and it was kind of like my home, it was like this big house where I had the same teachers every year. Um, I was by the time I was in my last couple of years of high school, I was really, really like over it and really like everybody knows every single thing about me, which is probably why now I'm so public about everything. Like if you follow me on Twitter, like, you know, I'm like very open about my life, but it's because I never like had privacy in my life, like pretty much ever. So it was really natural for me to come on and like grow up with the internet scene and just like share all my business. Well, you called it prep school and you said lower school. These are terms that I don't you is this for a reason where this was like a special kind of school that was very small? Like what what's going on here? Um, I don't we called it lower and upper school instead of elementary and high school. And I always forget that other people don't do that. I'm not doing it to like be like, well, we called it lower. So it really just <laughs> is like uh what we called it. It was lower, middle and upper school. Um, a prep school is just like it's probably the same thing as a private school. I don't know. We called ourselves an independent prep school <laughs> instead of a private school. I don't know if that was just like, I don't know why, but um, I think it's more like you're bred for college, basically, um, from when you go in, in kindergarten. You're, yeah. You don't do, um, obviously, you don't do like state exams or anything like that. You have like your own exams um, and it's it's geared towards college from the time that you're five and till you get in basically so what i mean what is that experience like is that do you feel like you had a different experience growing up going to a kind of like private school like do you do you feel like that was uh unique or at least somewhat unique i i think it was something where i never thought of myself as a person who's smart ever um, it's still hard for me to think of myself that way. I had these great encouraging parents who always told me that I could be anything that I wanted to be. Um, they told me I was good at math. I just ne- wasn't necessarily good at math for the school that I went to. You know, they didn't tell me that, but like they, they told me like, you're good at math. You're fine. But I always thought I'm dumb. I'm bad at math and science because it, I was only competing with 30 people, <laughs> you know, in my class. And so if I wasn't at like the top of that, then I was like, man, I can't even be the best out of like this group of 30 people, but it's a very selective, competitive group. And I think um, when you're young, it's easy to recognize I am good at math because those things are graded like on a very specific scale, like you get the problem right or wrong. I think it's harder to recognize that you are talented in writing or something like that. Um, So I didn't really view myself as somebody with any sort of... um, ability in school or any sort of intelligence basically until I got to like maybe eighth or eighth or ninth grade and my um my English teachers which we called language arts um sort of recognized uh an ability in me that made me feel like okay maybe like I do belong here maybe I could get into an okay college um but I definitely never felt like I was competent or talented in any sort of way because everybody was incredibly brilliant and incredibly talented well, you, so you said you you ultimately go to uh, the the biggest college that you can. What was uh, what was the decision there? Like, what did you want to do and study and uh, you know hope to achieve with college? <laughs> um, so I actually decided um, at the end between the University of Michigan and Oberlin College, which are like very very different. Oberlin is a tiny school in Ohio that is about sixteen hundred people. When I toured there, I went with two of my friends. We did like a day trip, um, and they were like 
here's the dorm where you can like opt out of air conditioning in order to be better for the environment. It's like an entirely green dorm and like here's all the recycling and here's like, you know, all of these super hippy dippy liberal, um, very much up my alley programs. And my friends were like, this is perfect for you. This is like exactly where you should go. Um, but I just felt like it would it would just be my high school, but the college version. I felt like it would be exactly the same. It'd be tiny. Everybody would know my business. Everybody would have the exact same political views. Um, my high school was very liberal. Um, and I just felt like I wasn't really going to grow very much. And I also knew a couple of people going there. And I was like, I know myself. And if I know people already going into college, like I'm not going to meet new people. I'm just going to want to hang out with them because uh, I've had the same friends since I was five. Uh, so I decided to go to Michigan because it still had the sort of politically active culture, but it had football, it had hockey, it had cheerleaders. I love sports. Um, and I felt like it was something completely different. I always wanted to have like school spirit and these things I sort of missed out on. I didn't know what homecoming was until I went to college. Like there were all these things that like I wanted to be around people who went to public schools um, because if I just went to this tiny private school for college, I felt like I wouldn't get any sort of diversity of background or anything like that. Nothing against Oberlin. I have no idea what the student population is like there, but um, it was just, I just needed something different and I definitely thought that I made a mistake for my first year, but I think it was the right choice ultimately. So what did you go to college for? Uh, I knew I was one of the few people that declared my freshman year and never changed my major. I uh, knew that I wanted to be a women's studies major. Always. I don't think that should surprise anyone. <laughs> well, what like where did that come from? Like, wh like this desire to be a women's studies major. Did you have an idea of what kind of career that would lead you to? And like, where did the idea that, that like that was something that you were passionate um, about come from? I think in terms of career, I, I sort of thought maybe I'm going to be like a social worker or work in like mental health or something. So I thought I would also do like a bunch of psychology classes, but I took intro to psych and hated it. I was like, we have to memorize the parts of the brain. This is science. No one told me it was going to be like actual science. That was going to be a social science. Um, and so that was just totally not for me. Um, so after that, I was like, I, I don't know if my major is really going to matter too much, which that is TBD because I haven't started applying to like career jobs yet. Um, but I felt like I need to do something where I'm going to feel really rewarded and really fulfilled. The women's studies program at Michigan is absolutely outstanding. It's one of the first ones um, ever in the country. And it was just like, this is what I want to do. I need to be passionate about the schoolwork that I'm doing. I also um, minored in history, which is something that I really love. Um, but it was never something that I chose because I wanted a specific career. I figured I would go into nonprofits or something like that, um, or going to government work, which is no longer viable, but um, I did do an internship with the government uh, during my college career. And it was just something that I, rem I don't remember like becoming a feminist, but I remember when I wasn't one. And I remember in like seventh grade, just being really like, that's stupid. Like we already have the same rights as men. Like women are just complaining. Like, and I don't think it was anything that I thought about critically that I was legitimately like, Oh, feminists are dumb. It was just something that like, you know, this will make me like fit in more with the boys <laughs> or whatever. Um, if I like make fun of this thing. Um, and then I guess at some point in high school, I really don't remember what changed for me. I guess it was just that, um, I had so many, like 
my school and my community was really open and welcoming. And I had so many openly gay friends, even by the time I was just in eighth grade. Um, And so that was sort of the entry point to me that I was like, it would have never occurred to me to be against gay marriage. It's just not something that anybody in my community ever expressed. And so when I was like more on the internet watching the news and stuff, I was like, how are people against this? And I think that was like an entry point where I was going to pride parades and I was going to Rocky Horror Picture Show and I got really involved in sort of like, you know, whatever aspects of gay culture you can be into when you're 14. Um, And from there it was like, okay, well, gay rights are all tied up in women's rights are all tied up in racial justice and abortion and all of these things that the more I researched and the more I got into it, I was like, I can't be just one of these things. I can't be pro-gay without being pro-women, without being pro-choice, without being pro-affirmative action. Like all of these things are really tied up in each other. And I think that for me was when I was like, this is what I'm passionate about. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm good at talking about, writing about whatever. Um, and it felt important to me, I guess. I think everybody wants to do something that they feel like is important. Yeah. Well, so what what landed you on like women's studies? Like you said, like you felt you couldn't just be one of them. So what narrowed you in on uh, women's studies in particular? Um, I think the program at Michigan is really uh, inclusive in that you have all these distribution requirements. So you have to take like a race, gender, and you have to take two race, gender, and nation classes. So like it has to do with gender, but it's focused on like race and ethnicity specifically. And then you have to do gender and health, which has to do with women's health specifically. And there's all these distributions. And I felt like I would kind of get um, all of that by being a women's studies major. Because there are plenty of classes that are exclusively African-American studies classes that aren't cross-listed with the women's studies department necessarily. But you can go in and be like, hey, like I think that racial justice is part of the mission of women's studies. Can this count towards that? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think most classes that have to do with social identity or anything like that, um, I think that the program is really welcoming of that because to focus on it just as gender is, you know, the intersectionality is such a buzzword now, but like it's not an intersectional approach. And that's really what they tried to encourage at Michigan was that like, you you have to always ask the other question if you're looking at something and you're like this is sexist you have to to also be asking like but how is it specifically affecting black women or disabled women or something like that you always have to to look at all of the identities in question so when you when you started to get into this kind of thing did you did it feel like at the time that it was a a huge issue or did it feel like uh, because I, I, I feel like it's, it's something that's been, uh, at least through my, uh, lifetime, you know, I, I certainly, I'm, I'm also quite young, but like, um, it seems like it's something that has, uh, been more and more introduced into the public debate, um, like women's rights, gay rights. Um, and then obviously really felt like it came to a head with the most recent election. Did it feel like um, like something that uh, was as big as it is now when you started getting into this? Or did it feel like something that was a little more under the radar? I think that's a good question. I think it was as big, but it wasn't as visible to everyone. So I think particularly since the 2016 election, um, if I tell someone like, like my dad's friends or something like that, people who are like not super old, but are in like the generation above me um, or a couple generations above me. If I tell them I'm a women's studies major now, there's always like a, ooh, 
Like (laughs) there's a lot going on there. Whereas before it was just like, how are you going to get a job with that? You know, there wasn't like a strong reaction to it. Um, And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it was always something that felt really visible and, and uh, very personal to me. It was crazy being in high school and being uh, really, you know, gay rights at the time were, I would say, like my pet issue preeminently. And it was crazy having it change so fast because I entered high school with like one or two states having gay marriage and graduated, I think, in the summer after I graduated high school. It was legal nationwide. And <laughs> I've never seen anything. And it wasn't like, oh, we know that this is going to happen in a couple of years. Like, I-, I think that there are a lot of people who had no idea that it would happen that fast. Um, But I think Obama was elected when for the first time when I was in eighth grade. So when I was first starting to get into those things. So I think it was very stark at that point. And then maybe by the time I was like end of high school, beginning of college, it wasn't something that people were like as fired up about. But I mean, there's always issues. There's always controversial issues happening. It's just that now it seems like everything is is like that. Like everything has been thrown into into chaos in a way that before it was like, well, this is the issue that I'm passionate about. I want states to expand Medicaid or you know whatever it is at that time. And now it's just like, I want everything to not be on fire and like people to not be killed at protests. And like it's it's impossible to hone in on on any specific issue, I feel like. How much of an influence do you think your school environment had on you uh, broaching these subjects? I mean, you 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 said that, you know, a large part of it was that you grew up uh, being good friends with a lot of gay people and that got you involved in that that community. And then that got you involved in these issues. Uh, do you think that 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 was a huge part of of getting you there? Do you think that you could have arrived there um, or would have arrived there had you been in a different environment? I. I think that I I would have arrived there eventually. I like to think that I would, but my school is definitely a huge part of it. Um, My parents actually are both Republican. Well, not anymore. They're both like not picking a party, but I grew up um, with two Republican parents, which I think would surprise a lot of people, but they were, you know, as moderate as they could be, I guess, but they were registered Republicans. They, uh, they voted um, for Republicans uh, until, Obama, I think. Um, but it was something that I remember in fourth grade, uh, my, I didn't know what, you know, I didn't know what party each candidate, I was totally not interested. I'm sure that there are some nine-year-olds who are very interested in these things. I was not, I was watching Survivor Vanuatu in fourth grade. Like that's what I was up to. Um, and I remember just being like, I, a girl came up to me who I'm actually still really good friends with. This is not representative of her as a person, but she came up to me. Her parents are super liberal. And she's like, who are your parents voting for in the election? And I was like, uh, George Bush. And it was like, I was never bullied at Winchester in lower school until like this moment when everybody was like, what? Like, why are your parents voting for Bush? Like, and there was one other kid in my class who was like, it's okay. Like my parents are too. And then I was like, see, like, it's okay. There's two of us out of 30. Um, and so it was something that I immediately was like, okay, something is wrong with this. I don't know what it is, but it seems wrong. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to say that it's like, I became a Democrat to like fit in or anything. I really didn't come up with a political affiliation until I was like 16. I went to a summer program for politics in DC and I 
actually learned about the issues. They kind of like force you to learn about them rather than just like Googling it. And I was like, oh, yeah, like presented with the information. Yes, I am a Democrat. That is what this is. Um, But until then, it was really just like, I'm independent from my parents. I don't really believe what they believe. But also my parents are really, really smart. So they probably have some some good reasons. So I don't want to say that I'm not a Republican or that, you know, whatever. Um, But my mom always says that school had you more than we did. So I think that in a lot of ways, I was definitely raised by my environment and my synagogue. I did go to um, to pretty a very, very reform, uh, pretty liberal synagogue as well. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, I do. I think it's it's very interesting how just how like I mean, I I've always thought of and I and I don't talk you know politics that often on podcasts, but I've always thought of politics in in our country and a lot of the just like even just like looking at the Big Brother community or the reality TV community. It's so very tribal in many ways, um, and it starts at such a young age. I remember thinking that. Um, you know, that being a political, uh, like being Republican or being Democrat was like a geographical thing. So I was mm. like, oh, yeah, here in Maine, we're Democrats. That's, That's not and even I was, that true of all and of I, Maine. <laughs> and I would just, well, like, I didn't I don't want to mention my specific town, but like, oh, right. here, like yeah. here in my town, we are all Democrat. And I would tell other kids that and they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's OK. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, and like, that's just like uh, how things would go. Um, and then, you know, as I grew up, I, I also was in a I was in a public school, obviously, but like, I was in a, a fairly liberal school and we had uh, like people would make fun of the Republican kid. Yeah. Like that was just how things went. Um, and nobody knew why you know that sort of tribal instinct is is so prevalent um and i think it starts so young uh but tell me about uh about the synagogue like you um i know this about you that you are in fact uh fairly religious right yeah, yeah definitely um i so <laughs> religious school is one of those things that no kid wants to go to and my dad always said like you're going to thank me for making you go to hebrew school kicking and screaming and now it's like like he was so right. Like, I'm so happy I did that. Um, cause now, you know, I go to synagogue voluntarily, um, by myself cause my brother doesn't live here anymore. And my parents don't even go to synagogue anymore. But, um, my dad was conservative. Uh, both of his parents were very, very conservative. Um, and so he grew up that way. And so my mom who grew up non-Jewish, I don't even know what denomination she was completely non-practicing. Like her, her parents were Christian. They celebrated Christmas, did not go to church. Um, but she was required to convert. Um, and I think that her experience being someone who is in the Jewish community, but not like she didn't really know the old Testament. She couldn't read Hebrew. Um, and it was, it was kind of a, a divide between, um, my mom and us a little bit just because we grew up with with the Jewish values and she sort of like just went into them um, that I think it was almost more important to her than it was to my dad that we uh, were really, really educated in Judaism because she knew what it was like to be on the outside of the community. Um, And so it was something that provided a lot of structure for me and was always really important to me. there weren't religious people <laughs> at my school. There were a ton of Jews, but none of them believed in God, which is fine. Believing God is not necessarily a part of Judaism. My rabbi has always said, you know, you don't you don't need to believe in God. Um, but I grew up in a 
Jewish neighborhood, the most densely Jewish neighborhood in the world outside of Israel and Brooklyn uh, is where I grew up and everyone was was Jewish, but no one really like saw it as super religious. People just sort of saw it as cultural and like you got your bat mitzvah and then you were done. But I always really connected with the idea of just like the sort of merciful version of God that my synagogue put forward. Um, There's a story that my rabbi told when I was really, really young. It's like one of my earliest memories that he said, I don't remember the details of the story, but there's, you know, this guy and he's Jewish, but he didn't like go, he didn't learn Hebrew or go to religious school, but he was going through this really trying time in his life and he wanted to pray to God in Hebrew. So he just sang the alphabet, which is just the Hebrew alphabet. And that was always like, Yes, like you're just trying your best, you know, to be in touch with your culture and to be in touch with God. And there's no specific rules in the way that I grew up with Judaism. Uh, My parents didn't enforce keeping kosher. Um, No one made me fast on Yom Kippur. I did it because it makes me feel connected to God. No one made me keep Passover. I do it because it's important to me. Um, And so I think it was just enough structure that I was like, I'm in touch with this community and this part of myself, and it brings me closer to my Bubby and Zadie. But I didn't feel any pressure. You know, Jews don't believe in hell. Uh, I, I didn't feel like there was anything that I I had to do. Um, it just, it's important to me to belong to something. I've always been a joiner, um, whether it's teams or musicals or whatever. Um, and I think just having that community um, was really important. And it was special because there was a, a lot of families. There was a group um, of five or six families. Uh, most of the kids I'm still really close with now were all of the moms converted and all of the dads were Jewish. And that's so unusual because uh, kids, Jewish kids take the mother of the religion. And so there were all these moms that grew up Catholic or Methodist or whatever that had just gotten into this and were able to support each other. And then there were all these kids that had the shared experiences of like, our moms don't know what they're doing, <laughs> raising us for our bat mitzvahs or whatever. Like they can't help us learn our Torah portion. Um, and so I think that that was sort of an important community element to me. Well, you, you mentioned being a, a joiner, and I, I think like something that um, that seems clear to me is that you derive a lot of your identity from uh, from your beliefs, from you know both your religious beliefs, your political beliefs. Um, like, how how much is that uh, intentional? Like when you when you were finding these things, when you were discovering religion, discovering your uh, your political ideology, like was that was that part of a quest to create an identity for yourself or discover yourself in any way? Ooh, I I wish that I had an answer to that. I think that when you're young and I, I still consider myself young um, <laughs> and I still consider myself to be forging my identity. I think that it is easier when you when you're someone like me who does not have like a career or something that I'm doing long term, or even now, like I'm not a student, like that's an identity that I've had my literal entire life. Like, um, and I don't have it anymore. Then I think that you want to say that you are something, you know, you want to say, I am Jewish. I am a podcaster. I, you know, I'm whatever. Um, and I think it's easier to derive meaning from that than necessarily to, to derive it completely from within yourself. I think it's easier to say that like, I belong to this community rather than I am like this kind of person or something like that. Um, not being very articulate about this, but I think, yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that's better or more rewarding, but 
it is easier to to get a label from like things that you chose to be a part of. Um, and I think that that was important to me because everybody wants to fit in. And whether it's uh, a synagogue or, you know, something more perhaps damaging like a click or something like that. Um, I think that that's what you want to do when you're young. I think that's what you gravitate towards. So do you think that it's it's been a positive influence on your life to uh, to be a part of these groups and to to allow them to uh, form your identity? Yes, I think overall, yes. But the advent of time hop has really made me question this because <laughs> there, the thing about you know, joining all these different groups and having them be like the most important thing to you at one moment is that like you look back in five years and, you know, I make this Facebook status tagging all these people that I haven't talked to in four years or whatever. And it's like, would I have been better off investing in like one thing that I was like super passionate about instead of like dancing and joining the tennis team and going to religious school four times a week and, you know, being on the squash team and, 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 um, but, you know, all of them were formative in a different way. But I do sometimes wonder if maybe I would have a better sense of self if I had just sort of picked a couple things. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, another another part of of that sort of mix of things is is your sexuality. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Obviously, maybe some people don't know this, but uh, I, I believe you are you're bisexual. Is that yes, what you okay. that is the terminology that I prefer? So, uh, so tell me about like that, like, how did you even discover that? Um, it was, it was so much easier. I, I feel so lucky that it was just so much easier for me because just my, my best friends in eighth grade, like we were just queer. That's like what we were. And it was never really a thing. Um, I mean, I sort of remember a moment in like eighth grade when I was like, oh yeah, no, I'm attracted to women. That's what this is. Um, but it was never like. I never even had to really come out to my parents. I just remember a point, and this is so dumb, but I remember a point like my freshman year of high school where my dad was like, you should watch Boardwalk Empire. And I was like, I don't want to watch Boardwalk Empire. And he was like, okay, but like, it's a really good, I have all of the DVDs. If you want to invite a boy over sometime or a girl, you know, (laughs) and watch Boardwalk Empire, then you should. And that was the first time I was like, oh, they know. They've always known. It was just something that I wasn't really private about. Um, But I think the struggle with it sort of came later um, because I think that there's an expectation if you are bisexual that you like you must be equally attracted to men and women or you must date men and women equally um, or people do the shitty thing where they're like well are you like 60 40 or like 80 20 and like that never resonated with me at all but there came a point where I had to acknowledge like this it's not the same kind of attraction it's different um and then there was a point where i was like well i'm not bisexual enough or like um when i entered college and tinder started becoming a big thing i was like okay so i obviously want to set it to men and women but i just i couldn't see myself meeting up with a woman and going on a date in the same way and when i when i envisioned my future it was pretty much always with a man. And then I was like, well, maybe I'm not by like, maybe that was a phase like everybody told me it would be. Um, but I think what I came to realize was that for me, it's not about like, oh, I don't see gender or I like, you know, that's, it's not something that I consider in the equation. It's more just like, I don't seek men and women equally. However, 
I have dated women and it it's something that I don't necessarily see as like an obstacle. Like I think that people who are heterosexual, obviously they, they look at, if you're like a, a straight woman, you would look at a woman and not see any potential, you know, you wouldn't, you, it wouldn't occur to you, but it was just something that never was a barrier for me. If I would get really close to, to a woman, it was like, yeah, like I have feelings for this person, but I don't necessarily seek out women. It was just that I had a specific friendship that turned into more than a friendship. And it's just like, oh, this is just something that can happen to me. And that I think is just a different kind of of bisexuality, I guess. Um, but I still think that the label applies and I do get insecure about like not being queer enough or whatever. Um, but I think that that's just my my specific experience. So it's kind of like like uh, if you're on a date with somebody and then they say, oh, yeah, I actually podcast about Big Brother. And then they're like, oh, oh. And then uh, <laughs> you are the kind of person that would be like, oh, actually, that's OK with me. That's not an obstacle. <laughs> that's sort of how you see gender. <laughs> this feels autobiographical. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, has that happened to you? No. OK, never. Sure. Um, no, but I, I mean, obviously, like uh, you tell people, you, there are people whose faces will go. Oh, yeah. I I think it's just something that I I'm not opposed in any way to letting a relationship or a friendship grow organically, um, regardless of gender, and that doesn't have to be man or woman. You know, any any gender. Um, it's just not something that I would necessarily close myself off to or feel um like weird about in any way it's just it's just a different thing I guess the way that I pursue men and and the way that my relationships with women have formed is it is it like a like an intellectual thing that like makes you prefer men or is it is it do you think it is sort of part of just how you are even attracted to them I don't know what it is I part of it is maybe just that I grew up thinking about my wedding so much that it's like, this is the image in, in my head that I have. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you know that I'm obsessed with weddings, but, and so I kind of still want that like perfect image that I had imagined. Um, but the other part of it is that I think that I am genuinely uncomfortable applying a sexual gaze to women because I know how much it sucks to have it applied to me that I don't know that I even know like how to look at women the same way that I look at men. Like I think it's just not, I, I don't ever want to objectify a woman. And I think part of like seeing someone on Tinder and being like, yeah, that looks good. Like there obviously is objectification that happens because all you see is pictures and like a one sentence bio or whatever. Um, and I think I'm just not comfortable um, or I don't think I'm capable of like reducing women to that. I don't know. It's, it's just, uh, it's a different feeling for me. But you you do feel capable of doing it to a man. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you have to. <laughs> it's what online dating is. I don't know. I mean, that's interesting. Um, so do, do you do you think that maybe uh, part of that is that you're seeing yourself, you know, as like being in the male role if you are looking at women in that way? Yeah, I do. And and it's it's even like a, a very specific to me thing where um, I prefer men who are much taller, but I f prefer women who are shorter. And then it's like, OK, what's happening here? Like <laughs> our gender roles. What are they like? This is weird. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what it is. 
So, so, uh, so how how prevalent is this uh, idea of of gender roles and the women's studies thing? Like, um, it's obviously something that you you talk about a lot. How prevalent is it in your life? Because um, you see a lot of of media criticism having to do with this. You see a lot of um, you know, like just regular everyday behavior uh, get filtered through this uh, this view. Um, is it something that like that that really is like a filter that everything comes through for you? Yeah, I think that there's no way for me to remove it. And there are certain things that I have to explain around and that I have to justify for sure. Um, you know, I do love The Bachelor and I do love, um, you know, someone like John Mayer, who by all reasonable accounts, I should not like because he's a terrible person. But like, I love him and I can't help it. And so there are certain things where I do have to be like, OK, do I need to just like take off my my women's studies hat for a minute? But I think I learned that like I don't really you can't take it off or just be like, well, just this one thing is fine. This can just be my guilty pleasure. You just have to be like, I acknowledge all of these shitty things about this particular piece of media or whatever it is, but I need to allow myself to also like be a human being and feel joy and negotiate that with myself. Um, but it's it's not something that like ruins anything for me. I, I believe firmly that criticism is an act of love because I would not spend my time writing criticism about a show that did not matter in my mind. No one's writing gender analysis of like King of Queens or Young Sheldon, you know, like that's not happening. And it's not because they're doing everything perfectly and they're the perfect feminist show. It's because there's nothing to say because they're they're nothing. They're not doing anything. But there's tons of feminist critiques around shows like Girls or Transparent where it's like, well, nothing satisfies you feminists. It's like, no, like this is good. We are happy to have representation, but it is important to look at it as like, what can we improve? And it, it doesn't ruin the experience for me at all. If anything, looking at things through a critical lens with regard to social identity enhances the experience for me because I can recognize the good and important work it's doing by recognizing its faults. And we're navigating so many controversial topics right now and you just had to throw shade at King of Queens. I feel like we're going to get... <laughs> eaten alive by all the king of queens fans it's gonna be terrible it's just so relevant right now yeah it's such a hot topic um all right so uh, does that does that get tiring do you feel like it do you feel like it's an extra step that most people don't do or do you feel feel like it's like most people do this they just might do it in a different way i think most people do it in in a particular way it doesn't necessarily have to be gender or race or whatever i think everybody has some sort of identity hopefully that is important to them in some way. It's just that I, I, I specifically in college focused on um, media representation within women's studies, like not officially, but that's what I wrote all of my papers about, whether it was like Asian stereotypes in crazy ex-girlfriend or my thesis about race and gender and survivor. Like if there was an opportunity for me to write and learn about representation on television, that's what I was doing. So I think I try to look at it from as many angles as possible. I, I really, I don't find it tiring. I find it fascinating. And I find that it, it allows me to take television really seriously as an art form, which I think is good. So is it is it frustrating for you to like because obviously this is something again that's it's pretty controversial um you know just in general uh but like you've mentioned some of the criticism like uh like why do you why do you nitpick everything why do you hate this stuff um is it 
is it frustrating for you to get that feedback? Uh, like, do do you feel like um, do you feel like it's unfair to to receive that kind of feedback? I mean, I think that it's understandable in that people who don't necessarily know a lot about media studies or feminist critiques or anything like that would just be like, you know, why are you looking for the problem in anything? I mentioned earlier asking the other question, you know, if something is sexist, how is it racist? And I think a lot of people would uh, construe that as just like finding every single thing that's problematic about everything. But I just don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. Like, I I don't think that I'm ever saying you can't watch girls because it's racially exclusionary. I love girls. I love it. Like, I'm one of the people, one of the few people who thinks that that show never got bad. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't enjoy something um, or that it, it detracts from my enjoyment of it in any way. I just think that everybody should be aware of the way that media is impacting politics or the world around you. And I think if you genuinely love television, which anybody who is listening to this podcast, I'm sure does anybody who's listening to RHAP, then you should be excited that that television is being taken so seriously as an art form that people are putting forth the effort to say, how is this affecting the broader world? I think that 20 years ago, nobody would be super concerned about the way that sitcoms are affecting our material reality. Um, and I think that it's exciting that now a lot of people are. Is it something that you try to pay attention to or be aware of that um, that some people may take this the wrong way and therefore try to, um, you know, this this is all, like these kinds of criticisms often uh, very quickly go to extremes on either side. Do you mm-hmm. try to bridge that gap or do you just say, you know, people can criticize all they want. I'm going to do my own thing. Um. I have never considered myself a moderate person or as someone who is going to kind of bridge the gap between two sides. I don't think that's what I'm good at, like negotiating between one side that I really agree with and one side that I completely disagree with. That's just not uh, something that I'm great at. Um, So I I generally tend to stick to like, just stick to my guns. Like this is my argument. And if you have a problem with it, then like, you know, you can tweet at me and maybe I'll argue with you for two tweets and then be like, all right, this is not happening. Um, but I have always said I've always wanted to be famous my entire life. It's always what I have wanted. And I have always said that I if I ever get any sort of platform, I, I have to use it to promote what I want. And even with like the tiny platform that I have now from this podcast, like I'm not going to not retweet things from vegan organizations or point out sexism in something just because I know that maybe a couple of people will unfollow me or, um, you know, people are going to argue with me or anything like that. I, I don't like conflict in my everyday life at all. I'm really not someone who deals well with conflict, but I have come to accept that like there are certain things that I have to use my voice to amplify. And that sounds like so self-righteous and like, I'm like doing good with my platform. It, it was just uh, something that I have always felt is my responsibility. I really don't like when celebrities won't say anything about any cause that they believe in. It makes me like them a lot less, even though it's valid and I know what they're trying to do. Um, Cause it's not necessarily their job to weigh in on these things, but I just feel like if I can get, even just like one person thinking about an issue that they haven't thought about before or to just be like, oh, I guess I can try Meatless Monday, like anything like that, then it's like I I feel like I have to take advantage of any leverage that I have. Do you worry sometimes about 
the like uh, like you said, you said John Mayer is is a terrible person by yeah. all accounts. Do you worry that you are too condemning sometimes? Um, not not really. I guess. Um, I don't know. I feel like I just. There are hardline stances that I think sometimes need to be taken. And I don't I get frustrated when people are constantly undermining what they're saying, which I'm also doing by saying, like, it's fine to love all these things. (laughs) Um, But I think that that women are constantly qualifying their statements always all the time with everything. And I'm trying to get out of that habit and just being like, this is something that I believe. And that's that's what it is. And that's the thought that I'm going to put into the world. And if people come up with, um, you know, a, a counter argument that I'm like, oh, yeah, I should should have considered that. Like, for example, I tweeted something that I did not mean to get as much traction as it did about um, how Big Brother potentially is structurally biased against women. And I said that all of the great players are men. And you correctly pointed out, like, no, there are women who are considered great winners. Or I said winners. Um, and I was like, you're right. I should have said best. Like, that is an instance where I'm like, yeah, the the three best winners is what I was talking about. The three or four best winners, not necessarily all of the great winners. And so there are ways that I am totally fine with like revising what I said. I just I don't I'm not scared to be like, here's like a blanket fact. As long as I believe it to be true, I don't really care if it's general or radical or whatever it is. Like if I believe something to be true, then that's what I'm going to say. You want to avoid being a fancy fencerton. Exactly. Yeah, I really do. You mentioned that you uh, you've always wanted to be famous. Yeah. Uh, so where where did this drive come from? I I don't know. My parents showered me with attention. I only had one sibling. I got tons of personal attention at school. It's not like I was starved for attention or anything like that. I think a lot of celebrities, um, particularly comedians, say that they uh, they like used humor or entertainment or whatever or even just like theater to cope with like difficult times and that was never me I had you know admittedly a very easy childhood um I I don't know I I think that I I don't understand the impulse of not wanting to be famous your whole life I guess it, what I don't what are the downs I can't say that like it draws from anything in particular because I'm like who would not want to to have all that attention and success and and feel like you people care about what you have to say. Well, I, I mean, that's another, uh, I think, part of like what makes us so opposite. <laughs> um, you know, for as much as I am, you know, in in this sort of realm where I'm getting a lot of attention, it's never been my goal. Uh, and um, you know, we've had these conversations where I'm like, yeah, I really prefer to, you know, maintain a level of privacy. And uh, and you're like, why? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not interested in privacy. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you just be talking about all of these things? That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but I mean, I, I think it's an interesting contrast from like, I mean, I just talked to to Netta, who is sort of similar to me in that like she she went on a TV show for sure, but she never wanted to be like in a spotlight. Um, and, you know, then there are people um, like uh, like Eric, who was like. I'll do whatever I'll do whatever you know I'm I'm fine with being out there but I'm also wanting to be private in other areas and um 
you know, then, then there's like somebody like Ian who was like, uh, I'm, I'm an extroverted introvert. Uh, like I wanted to be extroverted and I wanted to be out there. Um, and I, I really feel like that's such a, a huge part of, um, of how you handle the attention that you get from these kinds of shows. Um, but so like you, you, you want the attention like you, and you don't even understand why can, can you understand why some people wouldn't? Yeah, I I can understand it, but I think when you ask like where does that come from? Like where does that impulse to be famous come from? I think that it's almost like a a more telling question to ask people why don't you want that? Because I, I think more people want it than don't. And maybe I'm completely wrong. Um, but I I think at least on some level, maybe people don't want the actual experience of being famous because they would get sick of it really quickly, but I think everybody or most people at least want to experience that for a little while yeah yeah i mean i do i do that trick too when when people are like why don't you drink i'm like why do you drink uh <laughs> <laughs> well that one's pretty easy but we won't get into that <laughs> well exactly but that's the point like of course you understand your own perspective and you're gonna think that the other perspective is the one that needs the explanation but like yeah. um i i mean because because like for me i think that um there are a lot of people that uh you know that would be very happy to to never have us there are a lot of people that never play big brother because they don't want the spotlight but they would love to if it wasn't on tv yeah i i mean it's also important to mention that i have a performing arts background my first dance recital <laughs> was when i was three so i have always wanted to be on stage to have the spotlight on me i never wanted to uh pursue theater professionally at all like even when i was a kid it was just never something that i wanted i did want to be a pop star but I kind of, even when I was five, knew that that was not going to happen. Um, but I never wanted to pursue theater, but I still wanted the the spotlight and people telling me that I did a good job. <laughs> and I, I just think that there is something, at least in a certain part of the population, that just, I, you know, you know... I, you said it's the top of the show. I need to be validated. And I, I don't know where it comes from, but I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people want strangers to tell them that they did a good job. And and, and I think that's interesting because like I, I, you know, I don't want to get too like armchair historian or whatever I am being right now, but I do feel like that is a more recent development in our society. Um, do you think that, that part of this stems from, were you very much into pop stars when you were a kid? Like, were you somebody who, yeah. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I have. Okay. So I mentioned that I haven't, um, I've never moved. Like this is the house that I'm in currently that I came home from the hospital to. Um, and the posters on my walls, I don't like change. The posters on the walls in my bedroom, not in my bedroom right now, but um, they're the same as when I was in fourth grade. I have like Fall Out Boy. I have one of Pete Wenz. I have like uh, the Jonas Brothers, uh, just these posters that I would collect and I would pull out of J14 magazines because I was just obsessed with Demi Lovato and, um, you know, whatever iCarly like whatever Nickelodeon show was when I was like just at that age where I was like starting to have crushes or whatever um it I was always completely fascinated by celebrities I made my parents buy me um an autograph from Ethan Zahn on eBay which is addressed to a different person it's not even just like a photograph that's signed it's a photograph that's signed that says Mr. Quinn happy birthday forever (laughs) 
love Ethan. And it was on eBay and I made my parents buy it for me because I just I wanted that part of of Ethan, who is like my favorite survivor. So is this is this a part of you like because uh, I, I think a lot of I mean, certainly, I think in the reality TV world, I think this I think you're right that this is considered fairly normal. I mean, this a lot of the people that we interact with or that we watch are these kinds of people that want t- the attention that want um, that, that that go on the show to get attention to be uh, famous or or whatever. I mean, we get a lot of those on Big Brother. Um but I think there's also a large contingent of our society that would say this is uh, this is you know disruptive. This is um, this is a negative thing that like you know the kids nowadays that all they want to do is be famous for the sake of being famous. Do you feel like there is a negative aspect of this, uh, or do you feel like it's it's sort of a misunderstood uh, uh, thing? I mean. I'm sure that there are negative aspects as much as there are negative aspects to anything about social media or, you know, it's so not easy, but, you know, it's obviously way easier to be famous now than it was like when our parents are growing up because you can do it on YouTube or Instagram or whatever. Um, So I think that it's become something that's very re- realistic for a lot of kids. Um, It wasn't so much that with me because social media didn't exist when I was a kid. But I mean, I, I'm sure that there is that there are some damaging effects, but I think that at the same time, I don't know that there's anything wrong with telling kids that like you could have an audience to, to make your voice matter, to make your voice heard. I think that um, there are kids who maybe just want to have a platform to talk about what they believe in or whatever. And now that's possible um, in a way that it wasn't before. And I don't know if the pros outweigh the cons, but I think that maybe if people want to be famous by any means necessary, that's certainly a bad thing. Um, That's never something that I (laughs) was interested in. Uh, I think that, you know, you want to be famous for, uh, if not the right reasons, at least not like damaging reasons (laughs) Um, with people like, you know, PewDiePie or whatever, like these YouTube celebrities that like have sort of gotten more famous by being terrible. Like, I think that's a bad thing, but I think that there are ways to get famous through um, more positive things as well. Do you think it's had a negative impact on your life in any way? I don't know. I think that it's certainly aspirational um, in a way that is beneficial to me that I'm like, you know, maybe one day like I will be able to reach this dream that I've had forever and it's more likely than it would be if I had grown up 20 years ago, but there's also constantly a fear of peaking. I think, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, like they peaked in high school. That's a bad thing. Um, and I think when you have a physical number that you can look at, like of Twitter followers or whatever, like if that number suddenly goes down and you're like, oh, that was at that point in my life, that was the most Twitter followers I ever had. That means that that's when I peaked. If your goal is to be famous, then that's really scary. I think that that's not necessarily a good thing because I think quantifying your life like that is um, both hard not to do and obviously not a healthy thing to do. Um, I also do want to make clear that being famous is not my only (laughs) goal in life. I feel like I sound super unlikable in this whole interview, but it's just something that I've always I've always dreamed about having a, a platform. Do you, I mean, something that Netta talked about was that, um, that, you know, being in this position gives the audience, the, uh, the, you know, the, the crowd or so to speak, uh, a lot of power 
over you. Do you feel like that is true of yourself? Yes, that is, I think, the one thing that is difficult to to think about how I would navigate and even like do a little bit to an extent right now. Like when you put out content like podcasts or you're writing or whatever and you put it out on the Internet, you are offering it up for public critique. And that's totally valid. Anything that people comment on you know, the So You Think You Dance podcast or whatever, like that's totally legit. You're, of course, encouraged and allowed to comment on things, even if it's negative. But I think sometimes people don't know the boundary between commenting on your work in which I extensively talk about my life, you know? So, so people, there are things that I say that are personal to me that people can comment on. But I think people don't necessarily know where the line is to comment on your actual personal life and stuff that they don't that I don't feel like they should necessarily have a right to comment on. Um, And it's sort of a negotiation between public and private that I've never really had to worry about. You know, things like, um, you know, people tweeting constantly, constantly, people coming to my Instagram and direct messaging me or commenting on my Instagram photos that have nothing to do with the podcast asking if like you and I are dating. Like that's not appropriate. And it's not something that like, it's something that I feel like could affect my real life relationships when people are like starting rumors like that. And that is very uncomfortable for me. Obviously I know that that is like a part of being a person who has public interactions with other people um, and like puts it on social media and has a body of work with another person or whatever. But that's what makes me uncomfortable. And I've never had to negotiate that before where I'm like, well, now I don't want to tweet something at Taryn because people are going to like, make this assumption or whatever. And I'm like, I don't, I don't really want to censor or moderate my life in, in that way. But I know that that's a part of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I'm pretty sure like any, any, any time I've done a podcast with a woman more than once, there's been at least some sort of comment, uh, like, uh, I don't know in in some way and it's it's like you know i again this is the reality tv crowd they love shipping things uh so like i totally understand it but it is kind of awkward uh i i will say um so uh so i mean speaking of of the reality tv world like how did you get involved you said you 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 were watching vanuatu when you were uh, a child like uh how how involved have you been in uh the reality tv world and community and television and all that um definitely grew up on tv grew up on survivor did not watch other reality shows um, until I was a lot older. I watched the Borneo premiere when I was five and I never stopped except I was not allowed to watch Survivor Africa because Lex was covered in tattoos and my mom would think that that would make it okay for my brother and I to get tattoos, which, um, oops, (laughs) but uh, I do have them now, but uh, I was not, I never watched Africa um, until I was older. But other than that, I watched every season of Survivor. I got into it. It was something I watched with my family. Um, and then I got into it sort of on my own um, around Palau, I would say, um, because I loved Steph. I loved her so much. Uh, for my 11th birthday, my mom got me a personalized autograph from Steph. Um, and that was when I was really all in on it on my own. And um I started, I guess the next thing I started watching was The the Bachelor. And I always watched uh, So You Think You Dance and American Idol. But those were like different to me. Uh, but it wasn't really until RHAP that I started watching really anything else. Uh, the I got much more into The Bachelor instead of just watching it once in a while. Um, I was watching it weekly. And then 
never seen Big Brother until last year, um, <laughs> which some people might not know. But uh, I got into that, the all the MTV shows, uh, The Amazing Race, all of that was uh, just in the last two years. So like what what really drew you to these shows? Was it just the characters? Yeah, it was absolutely the characters. It was um, the the pretty people doing cool things. You know, I mentioned Ethan was my favorite, even though I had not seen Africa. Like, this is how crazy I was that I had just like I had maybe seen the finale, but he was so handsome. And I was like seven years old that I like didn't even know like what a crush was. It was just like this was a person whose face like compelled me and I knew he was on Survivor and I was obsessed with Survivor. Um, but it really was just like I was attracted to um, the people with big smiles and pretty faces who won challenges. And um, so Steph was my favorite. And um, I don't think I was able to appreciate the strategy until maybe like, I don't even know, China, <laughs> something like that. Like I, I didn't really care about the strategy. I watched every week to m- make sure my favorite person was still there. Uh, was it something that you had always sort of seen as like, I want to maybe do that someday? Like it was a vehicle for your goal of being famous? Um, not Survivor specifically. I never wanted to be on Survivor, but it was like, these are regular people who are on TV and like have young women admiring them. I think it was especially prevalent with So You Think You Can Dance because there's more of an emphasis on like inspiration. Like we're trying to inspire kids to dance um, that really connected with me that I was like, I want to do that and like tell people like me that like you can you can do this even if you're just like a normal regular person. So now that you are more involved in in these communities and you're doing these this podcasting uh i know that you have uh you've auditioned for uh for these shows now uh yeah. is this something that's like uh like a legitimate like real goal for you that you really want to like be on one of these shows i really want to be on big brother that's the only one i have auditioned for survivor um i don't want to be on survivor at all it was literally that they had um only one open casting call announcement like someone sent it to me and I looked at the website. The only one was in Royal Oak, Michigan, which is like an hour away from where I lived. And I was like, OK, this is a sign. Like, I have to go. It'll be a fun experience. I'll meet other reality TV people. Kyle Jason showed up. I ignored him. Um, <laughs> but it was just like a fun experience. Um, I technically applied for The Bachelor. I like submitted the written part, which like means that you technically applied. But they're like, you should also send in a video if you actually want to be considered And I was like, I'll do it. And then I never did. They want the video to be eight minutes long. Like, yeah, I'll produce my first feature film for this Bachelor audition. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, But Big Brother, I I did very seriously apply for um, when I turned 21. Um, I think I sent the video like way too early. I was like way too eager. They were not going to start reviewing them until March. And I was done in like October. I was like, I'm just going to send this off. but that's the only one that I think uh, I really, really legitimately am dying to be on. Well, so why why Big Brother in particular? Uh, because I think that theoretically I would be the best at Survivor, but I can't physically go on Survivor. Um, it's just not something that's feasible for me with like my health and my uh, general aversion to camping. But I think once I saw Big Brother, I was like, oh, I think that I could translate a lot of the skills that I think I would have in Survivor to this without worrying about the bugs and the disease and stuff. And also, if I were voted out first from Big Brother, it would not devastate me and ruin my life in the same way that it would for Survivor. I think one thing for Survivor was always like, yeah, I would do this, but 
this was like the purest thing in my whole life. I've spent like more time thinking about Survivor than almost anything else. If I were to go on this and get voted out first, I think it would like legitimately wreck my mental health. Uh, I think that I would not be able to watch it anymore and it would just like kind of destroy me. Whereas Big Brother, I just don't have the same kind of relationship with. Uh, and I think if I was voted out first, I would just be like, eh, I'll still get a bunch of Twitter followers from this. You'd, st- you'd still feel bad even if Josh and I did a whole podcast series about uh, about you? Yeah, <laughs> the first one out of, of Big Brother 21 um, or whenever I would be on it. But uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that it would just be cool to like have you guys like pick me in a draft and like, uh, you know, get the get the little bit of profile boost, Instagram followers, whatever from it. Um, obviously, it would still suck to be the first person voted out, but um, I, I just don't think it would really uh, impact my long term life in the same way it would from Survivor. See, I mean, hearing you talk, I think uh, you're exactly what casting is looking for in terms of uh, Big Brother people. Because <laughs> I want the Instagram buff. No, I do. I do legitimately want to go on to play. I'm just talking about if I were to go out first, um, you know, at least I would get a little bit of a, a social media bump. That is not why I want to be on the show. I want to go to play and I want to go to win. All right. Well, I I mean, so I mean, this is something that you you've you've started recently of applying for Big Brother. You just you said you just graduated. Uh, you've you've uh, you've started your your journey on your spirit quest, uh, as any listener of the American Ninja Warrior podcast knows. Uh, like what is what, like, what are you doing now? Because you, you initially started uh, in college, uh, you know, as like a, a woman studies major. You had a particular goal in mind. You're now doing some writing. Uh, you're, you're doing the spirit journey quest uh like like what what's what's happening with you right now you know what are you doing what are you doing with your life um (laughs) sound like all my relatives um i am currently traveling uh well not like literally at this moment but uh i have been traveling for the last uh month and a half um to go to different climbing gyms and uh, see my friends and, and crash with them um, and just kind of use the money that I saved working at a restaurant all summer to uh, feed my soul and do what makes me happy. And um, I am trying to do a lot of writing. Um, it's important to me that I'm still doing that. But I think for me, I always had a fallback if like, like a dream job for me right now would be like, working at Vulture or the AV club or something like that. That's obviously not something you can just like apply to um, and, you know, have that be a part of it. Um, But I always felt like while I'm working towards something like that, I can always get a job at the government in DC because I worked at the Department of Health and Human Services uh, when I was a junior in college. I did a semester uh, in DC and I made a lot of really great connections there. It was certainly not my dream job, but it's it was something that I knew that I could go back to in a paid position. Um, but the department no longer exists uh, because I worked for Obamacare and uh, we did not think that the election was going to go this way. And so I sort of had the rug pulled on, out from under me after the election where I was like, oh, so all of my government contacts have been liquidated and I no longer have like a normal office job fallback plan. And so that was tough to <laughs> reconcile. And I think... Um, because I didn't have something like that, I was just like, I just need to take a little more time off than I had anticipated um, while I figure out what kind of job I can do while I'm sort of working on my creative pursuits and going towards the the dream jobs that I have in my mind. 
So do you, do you still feel like you are trying to like find yourself in many ways, like forge your own identity right now? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I am someone who cares a lot about what other people think of me, obviously, because it's like my dream to be famous and be validated by strangers. Um, and I think that the school that I went to and the environment that I grew up in that was so competitive uh, really discouraged you from pursuing anything that wasn't like productive. I think that at Winchester, it was like, if you aren't good at it, then why are you doing it? If it won't get you into college, why are you doing it? If it won't get you an internship, like it's a waste of time. Um, and I'm now in a situation where I can do things that I suck at just because they make me happy. And climbing is one of those things where like, I just decided like, I earned my money, like, it's expensive, and I'm bad at it. And it's in no way productive. Like it doesn't do anything for anyone. But it makes me feel strong. And it makes me feel happy. And like, this is just like what I'm gonna do. And that's, that's what it is. And I think that there's sort of a shedding of self consciousness that happens where once I was traveling, and once I started thinking about, um, all of the things that I do because I feel like I should rather than because I want to, I realize like how much it permeates literally every aspect of my life. Like I remember being on the bus from New York to Providence a few weeks ago. It was like a three hour bus ride. And I was listening to the same album like over and over again um, on Spotify um, because like, that's just what I felt like I was listening to. And I, at one moment, at one moment uh, caught myself being like, I shouldn't be doing this. I should be catching up on podcasts. I should be discovering new music. I should be reading a book. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I judging myself for this? Like, and I just started realizing like how much I'm judging myself for literally everything I do. And I'm just trying to be like, what should I be doing right now with my time, with my money, whatever. Um, and I think traveling alone has helped me sort of be more in touch with what I actually want to do. So what is it that you want to do? Sometimes I want to travel on an, you know, an hour just to go to get vegan ice cream. You know, it's not prudent. It has, it's not efficient, but sometimes that's what I want to do. I've heard that this vegan ice cream place is really good. And so I'm just going to like spend an hour of my life going there um, rather than doing something productive. Um, or I'm just going to, you know, go for a run or, or whatever, instead of going to a museum, um, whatever it is I want to do just in, in that small way. And I think, I've given myself more time than I initially anticipated. I thought that I was going to take like I was going to start applying for jobs over the summer and then take the time it took for me to get hired somewhere to travel. Just like use, a, you know, hopefully like one or two months or whatever. Um, but I decided not to start applying for um, career jobs or anything like that. Um, I was going through a really difficult time uh, earlier this summer and just decided like I just need to give myself like maybe until the new year, even to just like live at home with my mom. I have to be home right now. I haven't talked about this publicly at all, but um, over the summer, um, I was still living in uh, my college town and um, my roommate had just uh, broken up with like her really long term boyfriend. Um, and so we decided to like go out with our friends one night and um I was sexually assaulted um, and it sort of threw everything into chaos for me for a while. 
there, you know, we we went out. My roommate was having a really hard time. We were drinking a little bit more than uh, we probably normally would have. Um, and I met a guy at uh, at a bar. Um, and we were dancing, and um, he ended up walking me home. He um, he asked to come in. I told him I was too drunk. I didn't want to do anything. Um, and he was like, "That's fine. Like we'll just, you know, we'll just kiss, and then we'll exchange numbers or whatever. We'll meet up another time." Um, but you know, he he didn't he he didn't respect that um, <laughs> what we had agreed on or anything like that. And um, he told me that he had seen me at a bar earlier that night and followed me and my friends um, to a different one. And uh, that's when I kind of knew that this guy was not. I mean, why would you tell someone that? Like, this guy legitimately thought that that was like a romantic thing to say to someone that like I followed you from bar to bar. Um, so I kind of knew at that point that like I was a little bit in trouble. Um, but I was not able to to do anything ab- about it. Um, I was really lucky because my roommate came home before the the worst happened, and you know, screamed him out of the apartment. Um, but he what he told me i i started crying um and i started you know covering my face and he was like don't you think you're being a little selfish like don't be a brat and that really like um was was really uh i it was weirdly like devastating to me cuz it was like oh am i being selfish like maybe i should just like let this happen or whatever um and I think that stuck with me in in the days after that I was like, maybe I was just being selfish. Um, and I think it's it's hard not to blame yourself after something like that. Um, but he he just wasn't. It's it's hard for your no to not matter, you know, to to be telling someone to stop doing something, and um, they just don't don't care. I kept saying. I am too drunk. Please stop. And he said, no, you're not. You're just using that as an excuse. So that um, sort of threw everything. Uh, you know, it was uh, a really difficult process in the days and weeks after that to kind of live my normal life. How, how did you how do you process that? Um. I didn't really for a little while. Um, I mean, I had to go to work the next day, which was, um, I mean, it was terrible. I worked at at a restaurant where I was a hostess. So I had to stand at the stand for six hours and like talk to to guests for six hours. And I was just like on the verge of tears the entire time. Um, There was just like a total emptiness that I had that I, I just, I didn't, I didn't feel like my body belonged to me anymore. I felt completely disconnected from my body, which um, is scary to anyone. But especially like I I danced my whole life and I've always felt really in touch with my body and what it wants and what it needs. And I I couldn't I couldn't feel anything that my body wanted anymore. You know, I didn't feel hungry or tired or anything like I just I wasn't in touch with with myself um, and you know, you can't tell your work, like you can't tell your job, like, hey, I don't really feel like existing in the world today. So I can't come in or like, I need to go home. You can't do that. Um, So 
I still had to like sort of pretend to live my normal life. And you actually were very patient with me where like, I think there was a time where I had to sort of like push a podcast back another day because I would get on the mic and literally be like in tears. Like this is not happening tonight. Um, But that was actually, you know, one of the, the safest places for me where I think like, once we kind of got into a groove and we're talking about American Ninja Warrior, it was like the biggest distraction that I had because I wasn't really able to get myself to go to dance class or to go to the gym or any of the normal things that I would do. Um, but I think once once I started to force myself to do those things, to go back to dance um, and to trust my body again um, and go climbing, that was something that made me feel really strong and really in touch with my body. Um, that's when I started to feel more like normal and human again. I think the biggest problem for me was um, that the process of disclosure was really difficult and painful for me. I didn't feel like I could really talk to anyone afterward. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's it's obviously something that it's, is very difficult to talk about. Like, um, I mean, it's so deeply personal and and, you know, it makes you feel out of touch with your body and, and powerless, like how, how did you even manage to, to tell anyone? I think that the, the people that I chose to talk to were <laughs> not strategic in any way. I think that if you had asked me before, like if this sort of thing were to happen to you, who, who would you go to? I think my list of people would have been very different from the people that I actually went to because it was, there were some people that like I knew would be like really supportive and understanding like my Roman studies friends. Um, but I would start to draft the text to be like, Hey, can you call me? Like, I want to talk about something. Um, and I just, I couldn't, something didn't feel right. And I think that there was a combination of like, well, I want people to care enough to like be concerned about this and like help me through it, but also not care enough to be like worried about me and like, go try to like find this guy and beat him up, which like I don't know his name. I don't know what he looks like. Like, um, I don't want anybody to like be that worried about me. Um, so it was sort of like a weird balance between that. And then the other thing was that like, I, I have read extensively about experiences of sexual assault. I was a a women's studies major. It's something that I felt like I am. It's something that I feel really prepared to deal with when it happens to other people. Um, and I think because of that, certain people thought that I would know how to deal with it myself um I I told one friend um that it happened and he was like well you already know everything that I'm gonna say you know like you already know that it's not your fault and that you know these things I'm like but I I don't it's I I need to hear it though like I, I need someone to tell me that because I think that it's human nature that people are unable to lend to themselves the same kind of compassion that they would lend to other people I think everybody thinks of themselves sort of as an exception to to rules where it's like, okay, well, if this exact same thing happened to one of my friends and she told me about it, then I know what I would say. But somehow in my mind, I was like, but with me, it's different. I'm just being attention seeking. Like, I'm just being dramatic. Like, no one wants to hear about this. Like, um, I just I felt like I was bothering people and I felt like. um. I felt like I was making people's lives worse by inconveniencing them with something like this. And like, there were just people that I would look at and I would like look at their lives and be like, this person is so like mature and responsible and is making good choices. And like, I can't even be responsible for my own body. Like why would I, I felt like people would 
not say it, but maybe think in their heads like, well, it was only a matter of time before this happened, which is a horrible thing to think about other people thinking about you. But, you know, that's like where my head was at at that time that I was like, no one's going to care. Like, no, everybody is just going to feel like you're, you know, making their lives worse by being in them in some some way. Did it did it feel that way as as you told everyone? Um, no one made me feel that way. I only told, um, you know, three or four people and obviously no one no one made me feel that way. But it was that voice in my head that's like, yeah, but they're thinking it like you. You don't want to tell them the story of what happened because they're just going to, you know, not not care about that or think like, you know, that you're just you're just looking for attention or whatever um, or that. I, I don't know. It just it felt like. Um, I've heard the terminology of like. Uh, I've heard that an, an assault um, described as it felt like you were filled with poison and I, I didn't I felt like I was the poison. I felt like I people I shouldn't I shouldn't even like be having relationships with other people because it it wasn't um, something that I necessarily had earned or whatever. Did telling people help you not feel that way? Or did you, do you feel like it, it just, it just, it didn't matter that you told people you just, I, I think that there was nothing that could convince me that to not feel that way. I think that I told people and I, I thought that maybe I would feel um, less burdened, but I really just felt like really paranoid about what they were thinking about me. Um, and so I, I wrote about it voraciously. I wrote about it every single thought that I had in my head about it. I wrote every single day. I was writing furiously. And that, I think, was when I started to be able to process it, that I was like, I was able to get all of this out um, and be able to read it back later and kind of analyze what I was thinking at that moment. And then I would write the same basically the same thing the next day but in different language and I would just write about it over and over and over again and then I was able to kind of like tease out um like what I really thought and what the truth was because I think when you talk to other people um even if you're being completely honest you're spinning your tone or your language or whatever to make it more comfortable for them um you know to tell it in the way that will get the best like the the reaction that you want from other people that's how you speak to people um and so I wasn't able to like really acknowledge all of the true feelings I felt until I just like put it out on the page and I was like okay like here's a super uncomfortable truth about all this that makes me feel like a bad person but now I can look at it and acknowledge that that is true and um I can start to to deal with that and process it so when do you feel like you know, I mean, obviously you are now, you know, on, on, on a podcast where, you know, you're, you're essentially disclosing this to, to all of, all of the listeners. Like, how did you feel like you got to a place where you felt comfortable to, to do this and to share it with me and, and, and all the listeners? Um, I think that I was able to do things that, um, made me feel strong and comfortable and happy and, um, was able to to feel a little bit more distant from it and I think also that I wanted to come on here and talk about this um because I think that I didn't there were no experiences um that I had ever read about or heard about that kind of matched what mine felt like I guess and um you know I think no one told me that I 
you know, I think I was probably one of the most prepared people in the world for a situation like this, um, just based on like all of the the knowledge that I have surrounding this topic. But I think that you, no one told me that like you just can't, you can't not feel those things. I thought that if something like this happened to me, because um, it's something that of course I I worried about um, for a long time. But I thought that if it happened to me, like I'm prepared to deal with it, I would know not to blame myself or whatever. Um, but it it just doesn't work like that. Um, and so I think if I can, you know, be a a voice for for people who are maybe going through the same thing or whatever, then like at least something positive came out of it, maybe. Um, and I think that I'm lucky that it didn't make me bitter in any way. I was really, really angry. I was really angry, but it hasn't made me like trust people less um, or anything like that. I think um, trust comes pretty naturally to me. And um, I, I believe in people to be careful with each other. And that's something that is still intact. I think I don't think that it's made me, um, you know, more wary of other people necessarily. Um, that's partly because I always knew the statistics about this and I always knew the realities of um, things like this. So it didn't really change too much of that in my mind. Um, and so I think I decided that to be public about it would be the the best way to use my voice to talk about something that may be affecting other people. I think the one thing that um, it has done is that it has made me... Um, a lot less able to brush off like harassment or something like that. Um, like street harassment is something that, you know, it happens to every woman basically all the time. And uh, it's something that I was previously able to just like either laugh at or kind of like be annoyed at and then move on. But now I feel really like, oh, like this person is going to follow me if I don't react the right way. Or like, I, like this person is now like extremely threatening to me. I was, um, on the subway in Montreal like a month or so after this happened and it was super super crowded um and there was a guy that was standing right behind me he was like really close to me and I was like this is really uncomfortable but it's probably just because it's crowded like he'll you know he'll get off I'm getting off and like you know the next stop um it'll be fine but then he like touched me and it was very clear that he was doing this on purpose and he followed me off of the train and I you know, he left me alone after he realized that I was with my dad and my brother. Like, <laughs> obviously, like no guy wants to uh, to get mixed up in that. But um, it was something that I think beforehand, before it happened, I would have been able to just be like, "Ew, that was gross." Like, I'm gonna make a tweet about this. But it just became intensely like for the rest of the night. I was like, "That guy's gonna show up somewhere." Like, and and something's gonna happen. Something bad is gonna happen. Um, so I think it, it's made me, you know more scared of something like that, but I'm, I'm not scared to talk about it anymore. Do you think that, you know, part of, of your traveling, you know, like going to all these places alone, uh, you mentioned the rock climbing makes you feel strong. And then even now, like coming out and talking about it, like has really helped you feel like you are like, you're handling this, like you're, you're getting on top of it and able to sort of, um, or at least starting to, uh, be able to sort of, um, feel like you are, are regaining that power over, over the situation. Yeah. I like to think so. I feel like I, um, it's very unusual um, amongst my friend group to be taking time off after college. Um, and it was something that I was always a little bit 
insecure about that like I'm just gonna like not have a job for a little while um and I think now it's sort of like I I am recognizing that I I'm doing what I I need to do to be happy and I think that there there was a moment um a couple weeks after it happened where I decided that I wasn't going to be applying for jobs for a little while that I was going to go home and I was going to take more time than I had anticipated to travel um because I was just like, I have to be happy. Like, I don't care what I, I need to do for it. Um, I I have to like, and, and I, I felt like going and, and seeing new places and visiting my friends um, in their new lives at their new jobs. You know, my friends are all over the country now, which has never really been the case. You know, we always all come back to Pittsburgh and hang out with each other. And I'm like, I'm going to go and see them and their friends and their significant others. And it's going to be meaningful and it's going to help me reconnect with where I'm from. Um, and I, I just gave myself permission to like do what I, what I wanted to do so that I could be happy again. So if, if you, I mean, you, you have this, this platform now, like you, you're able to speak to, I mean, certainly not a, a huge number of people, uh, you know, um, th- there's certainly an audience that you're speaking to now. So if there's anybody that that's going through anything remotely similar to this, like what, what would you say to them? I would just say that, of course, you know, it's not your fault. And I always thought that that was something that was just like an empty thing to say. But that is what I wanted to hear afterward, that it doesn't matter what your situation is. Even if I had told that guy, like, come back to my apartment and let's, you know, do whatever you want to do. If I even if I had told him that, which I didn't, I told him up front that I didn't want to do it. Um, If I had found at any point in that night that I didn't want to do that, it would have been as valid and um, to say no and change my mind and revoke consent um, as anything, you know, and and you have a right to do that. It doesn't matter what your situation is. I think a lot of victims um, try to negotiate around their scenario and be like, yeah, but it was different for me. Like I did this thing that I shouldn't have done and that made it um, that made it my fault or that made it not assault or whatever it is. Um, but whatever your experience is, if you if someone did something to you that you did not want them to do and you told them that or you were too drunk to consent or whatever it is, um, that's assault and that's your experience. And it's completely legitimate. And however you react to it, if you are someone who is able to, you know, be really forgiving and you know pray for your assailant or or whatever it is then that's awesome if you feel like you want to go burn down his house then that is also fine um you just you have to give yourself permission to recover in in the way that you need to and um i hope that you have someone who is able to listen to you and you are able to feel worthy of their um you know compassion do you, do you, I mean, do you feel that way? Do you, did, did you ultimately find that there was somebody that you could talk to that, that where it finally felt like it, it clicked and, and you were able to feel like worthy of their compassion? I think that I didn't talk about it a lot after, um, I initially told like a few of my close friends, um, I didn't really talk about it very much after that. I kind of just let it, um, just kept it to myself. Um, but I think that there came a point where I was like, if I do want to talk about this, then my friends who love me are going to be
be there and be supportive. And occasionally it's something that comes up in conversations with um, a couple of my closest friends that I'm like, I think I feel this way because this experience made me feel this way. Um, And they are very understanding of that. And um, it was never anything that I was like, oh, I don't trust my friends enough to to care about me. It was that it was my own insecurity being like, well, they have every right not to. Um, and they, they probably shouldn't because it's not worth it. Um, but I think once I started feeling more like myself again and was doing, you know, more of my creative pursuits and and living my normal life again, it was sort of like, you know, you're, you're worthy of this. And even if you don't, even if I didn't talk about it specifically, it was like, I felt, I felt supported and understood. So how do you plan to move forward with this? Like, you know, um, like eventually when you, when you go for jobs, when you start to live your life, like, is this something that you want to like put behind you? Is it something that you want to like carry on in in some way, uh, that you want to like speak out about? Like what, how do you, how do you plan to carry this? I don't know. (laughs) I think, um, one day at a time is how I plan to carry it. I think that it's something that, um, at least speaking to to other people who have had similar experiences or even just like seeing it um, reflected in, in media or in literature or whatever, it's something that never necessarily goes away. I think one thing I don't want to do is say like, oh, like this made me stronger. Like this was ultimately a good thing because it made me realize like how strong I am. Like I don't, I don't want that. I don't feel that. I don't feel like there was any positives in this at all which is why like I think talking about it maybe could create one in in hopefully helping someone else um comprehend their own experience but I think that when people say that like this traumatic experience made me stronger like that's that's maybe valid for them but I think that would provide vindication to that guy um in some spiritual way of like well ultimately like he did a good thing (laughs) like in in any capacity I don't want that um to, to be something that I put forward. So I think it will always be something that, um, I wish didn't happen. Um, but it did and there's nothing I can do about it now. And so I'm still figuring out the way that it informs my experience as a human being living in the world currently. Like there are still situations where I'm like, oh yeah, I definitely think that this is impacting the way that I'm responding to the situation. But, um, I don't think it's something that is, going to dramatically alter the course of my life necessarily. Um, but I also don't think it's something that I can just be like, all right, got through that one. Now I'm done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else that, that you, you know, wanted to, to speak about? Um, yeah. I think that men should go and educate themselves about what consent is because it's not necessarily their fault because schools don't really teach it. And there's shit like I couldn't watch the season of uh, Bachelor in Paradise because on one of the first episodes, they had like this little round table about like what consent is. And it was just so irresponsible and not true. And Chris Harrison was like, if someone's unconscious, can they consent? And everyone was like, no. Then he was like, if someone's drunk, can they consent? And everybody's like, maybe it depends on the situation. And I was like, no, this is like so irresponsible. Like, obviously there are nuances that like, if you and your committed partner or whatever have like had a couple drinks, like there's a conversation we had there. But if you're going on TV and being like, sometimes, like that's really confusing and like not responsible at all. And I, I think that men should just be cool and educate themselves 
It has to be enthusiastic, verbal, renewed. It can be revoked at any time, has to be sober, has to be conscious. Like it's, it's really, it shouldn't be that hard, but at the same time, I do understand um, how, how men could be confused or, or misled or whatever about it in a way that's not necessarily their fault. But I, I really encourage everyone to go be informed about consent. Well, I, I mean, I want to I want to thank you so much for for sharing uh, this this with me and and with uh, you know obviously all of of the listeners. Um, you know, this is uh, this podcast can uh, can go to some uh, very weird places with reality television, but it's also I think a place for people to uh, you know speak about their own experiences. And so um, you know, I, I'm I'm glad that you you feel uh, comfortable sharing this. And I, and I, and I really do hope that, that, uh, you know, anyone listening, um, even if you haven't gone through an experience like this, this can help, uh, inform somebody, uh, you know, in any way, uh, as to what this might feel like or what people might go through, or if maybe if you know somebody who's gone through something similar, uh, you know, this might help you understand their experience a little better. So, um, you know, just uh, obviously, you know, this, it takes, uh, you know, anybody that comes on this podcast, it takes so much strength to to open up about um, about anything. And this, this is something in particular that I think, um, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about. And so, uh, I, I mean, I want to, you know, commend you for, for wanting to speak out about this. Yeah. And thank you for, for giving me the space to do so. I, I felt like this was the right place to do it because, um, you know, I trust you and, uh, we are friends in real life and I enjoy podcasting with you. And I felt like this would be uh, a better way to, uh, get my story out there than just like tweeting something out or something like that. Um, and I, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about this so that people like feel bad for me or like, um, you know, ha- like give me sympathy or anything like that. It, it really is just because I think that um, I wanted to transpose my experience into something that could potentially help other people because that would also help my recovery to be like, OK, well, maybe something positive happened. Um, so thank you for giving me the space to do so. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you, you do write, um, do you, do you plan on, on writing about this at all? I don't know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I obviously, like I said, have a ton written about it. Um, I'm not sure if it's anything that is like a worth reading from a stylistic perspective and be like, um, is something that I necessarily like want people to, to read about. But, um, I, I do think that, it is relevant and now colors my perspective on a lot of the stuff that I do write about, which is like social, uh, social identity and television. Like I said, like hugely colored my perspective on bachelor in paradise. Like, um, it comes up now in a lot more things that I hadn't really noticed it necessarily before. Like, um, I think I've always been sensitive to consent issues, but now it's something that I'm like, I'll watch a TV show and be like, Whoa, like that was not responsible. So I think it will, um, will definitely inform my future writing on, uh, on those topics. Do you have plans for, for that future writing? Like, do, is this really where you want to like focus your attention? I, I think, um, in some ways, I mean, it's definitely wrapped up in gender and race and, and all these things. Um, I am hoping to do more, um, writing specifically about, uh, reality TV as we get into 
more of the survivor season stuff like that. Um, I have a couple things up and published in the last few months. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm just hoping to be able to get back eventually to, uh, the kind of, of writing that I was doing before rather than, um, you know, I try to make myself write every day. And for the last few months, it's been a lot of just like introspection, which is not something that I can ever really get out into the world necessarily, but hoping to get back into, uh, into my wheelhouse. Well, I mean, if anyone is interested in, in, in finding your writing, like, is, is there a place where they can do that? Um, yeah, there are a couple things uh, up right now. I wrote about uh, Jerry Manthe and the legacy of reality TV villainy um, that's up on myentertainmentworld.ca. That was published recently. Um, I recently have written about um, Asian American masculinity on The Bachelor. Um, that's the kind of stuff I like to write about. Um, hopefully I'll be getting more. I've been sort of opposed to the idea of a blog. Um, it's something that <laughs> I've always been averse to. So it's not all in one place, unfortunately, but, uh, things are out and about on the internet. All right. Well, uh, that's, that's about all we've got for you this week. Um, uh, I hope, uh, you know, obviously, um, it's very, very heavy topic, uh, very sensitive topic. And, uh, that's, uh, not even, um, mentioning all the, uh, political stuff we talked about <laughs> beforehand. And then of course the real, uh, the real bomb, the, uh, King of Queens <laughs> take, I mean, that's going to be a tough one to live through, but, um, uh, hopefully everyone, uh, found this, uh, valuable, you know, um, even if you uh, you hold views that are opposed to to leaders or or if you agree or whatever, uh, um, I think uh, you know discussion is is uh, is the key to everything. So um, I think there's value to be found in any kind of discussion, and I think there's a lot of value to be found in this one. So uh, I hope that everyone enjoyed it. Uh, so. Of course, you can find this podcast on iTunes, uh, The Taryn Show. It's also on the reality TV Rehap Ups feed on iTunes. Uh, you can find us on robhasawebsite.com. And uh, we will be back next week with another guest. Um, and of course, check out all of the uh, Big Brother coverage that uh, I do. Lita is occasionally on those morning updates. And uh, we're also about to wrap up uh, the season finale of American Ninja Warrior. Um, very fun stuff happening there. Uh, Lita and I went to uh to vegas and uh we're at the the taping of that finale so um lots of fun stories and uh and coverage with that yes um and if you did vehemently disagree with anything said today don't harass taryn on twitter harass me <laughs> it's fine i can take it he didn't or you ask can just not harass anyone but that's fine oh yeah i mean don't harass anyone but particularly like uh you know taryn didn't ask for me to uh to state any of my potentially controversial opinions you can follow me on twitter at lita tweeted and on instagram at lita grammed yes so that's where to direct your harassment um so uh yeah so thank you everyone for joining us we will see you next time Asking questions, Taryn's finding out, Taryn's looking deeper, that's what it's all about, it's the Taryn Show, so you